Well, as I was um, thinking about what I'd share with you about Simone Weil, I was um, reminded of the words of a song by um, a great poet who some of you may know called Leonard, Leonard Cohen. And I've got the CD play sitting here with, it, with the CD on, so depending on how the mood takes us, perhaps I'll play it to you later. But the words are basically um, saying that he's uh, walking through the streets of New York and he sees a beggar lying on the street. And the beggar has a sign laid out on the pavement in front of him and it says, please don't pass me by. And the words, and then the, so the words of the song are, take this theme of please don't pass me by. Please don't pass me by. And what he's saying to the audience is, that he's singing to is take these words on because you never know when it is that you might need them. The words, please don't pass me by. And the reason why that song, I think I will play it to you later because it's great and it's um, also quite uplifting. Um, I think the reason why I sort of that song came to my mind was because I think Simone Bray has something particular to say to us about this idea of being the outsider. And she has been sort of coined, I suppose, as being the patron saint, patron saint of outsiders. Um, and my experience of many people who uh, meditate, perhaps, is that that's perhaps something that I think we can probably all identify with in one way or the other, whether that be in relation to church or, you know, um, institutional uh, institutions of different kinds. But more particularly, I think it's about the way that she really gets to grips with this... Um, this part of ourselves that rejects ourselves, the parts of ourselves that we would prefer to leave outside, the outsider in ourselves, and how her, her insight into um, really the, the cross and the suffering of Christ kind of enables us to really, um, I suppose, come to understand what I think it was either Lawrence Freeman or John Maine said, that the love of God is beyond even our own self-rejection. So that's the kind of um, uh, particular thing that I think she has to bring to us. There's a picture of her here. She was a um, young, beautiful woman. I'll tell you a bit about the history of her in a moment. Um, and, um, yeah, this idea that um, perhaps in the modern world, I think she has particular relevance. Um, it's, it's possibly true to say that mankind's 
biggest problem, I think, is, is disorientation. This huge disorientation that so many of us experience and we see in the lives of other people because of the um, rush and travel and everything that goes on. And um, how we need these points of reference against which we can start to bring together some of this disintegration. But it's, as, as I sort of revealed to you, through um, speaking about Simone Weil, it's something that she had a huge burden for um, and which cost her dearly. Um, very painful life she had in many ways. So, um, so she was a teacher and philosopher and in her lifetime was revered as a mystic of genius proportions, she has been since her death. Um, she most identified herself with the margins, as I said. And most of what we know about her and her insights um, come from a collection of letters, private letters she wrote to a friend, um, and who was a priest. And these letters reveal her very strong sense of vocation which brought her to be seen as this patron saint of outsiders. She wrote of herself, it is the sign of a vocation to remain, in a sense, anonymous, ever ready to be mixed into the paste of common humanity. So it's through this lens that we, we approach her. And... It is perhaps through our own experience of being, experiences of being on the outside is the best and only way we can ingest something of what makes Simone Weil's mysticism so rich and enlightening, but also using a word she used to describe herself, which was the word dangerous. Um, and I always, um, as I sort of chewed over her writing, I can't help coming to the conclusion that it was with a sense of, of sadness and regret, and I think this is probably true of people who have a very deep and strong sense of vocation, that there's always a, a kind of death that they have to go through. Um, there's, a, there's a letting go of perhaps some of the things they most value in order to pursue what they believe to be true. And... I feel that it is with some sadness and regret that she came to the conclusion that she could not only not belong to the church, she was Catholic, and it was very deeply ingrained in her. Um, but on a more personal level, she would consider it unwise in her own eyes for anybody to become close to her. So that gives a window on something of the pain through which she came <coughs> up with what I consider to be a genius piece of writing. Um, in the book, this is her main book, which is called Waiting on God. Did you say she could or she couldn't give up the church? 
she felt that she couldn't belong to the she church. To yeah, the church. yeah. She says, it seems to me that the will of God is that I should not enter the church at present. The reason for this I have told you already, and it is still true. It is because the inhibition which holds me back is no less strongly to be felt in the moments of attention, love and prayer than at other times. I cannot help wondering whether in these days, when so large a proportion of humanity is sunk in materialism, God does not want there to be some men and women who have given themselves to him and to Christ and yet remain outside the church. So this idea of her being sort of dangerous, and, and there is um, a, something sort of toxic about her writing. It, um, it, it, it sort of gets under your skin and it pins you down to a very harsh reality, in a way. Um, and I suppose I, how, how, it can possibly not be otherwise for someone who writes about her own uncompromising desire to fulfil the two commandments at the heart of Christianity, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and love your neighbour as yourself. And she writes these words about herself. One cannot fail more seriously than me in the second of the two essential commandments. As to the first, I fail to observe that in a more, still more horrible manner. For every time I think of the crucifixion of Christ, I commit the sin of envy. There is something about her that perhaps those words we sort of want to go kind of stand back and go, uh-uh. <laughs> I certainly felt that times when I was reading her and getting absorbed in the book. And we want to sort of call her mad or, you know, yeah, like we do with, with people that we um, would prefer not to identify ourselves with. But I want to just read from you this a quote which is actually from... from Father Lawrence's book, he, the Jesus, the Teacher Within. I, I think he said that um, Simone Weil is his his favourite mystic, <laughs> and uh, um, perhaps this quote sort of challenges us to, um, at least for this evening, attempt to embody something of what her life demonstrated. And he writes, more conventional Christians cannot sidestep her prophetic wisdom, merely by pointing to her eccentricity. The very oddity of her outsidership shed light on the essential outsidership of all Christian identity. Like any other saint, her uniqueness shows that Christian identity incorporates the solitude of each individual created and loved by God. So we have to go there. <laughs> so, just some, a bit of a sort of a biography. I give you some background about her. Um, Simone Weil. She was born in Paris on the third of February, nineteen o nine. 
And um, thanks to her brother, she had a brother called Andre. She was very advanced in literature and science from a young age. But it was because of this brother, um, or so it says, that she, she fell into a kind of deep night of the soul at, at the age of 14. And this was because she felt that her gifts were so mediocre in comparison to his. And it was this horror of mediocrity that kind of kept her in pursuit of truth. Um, and she eventually kind of overcame this wretchedness by seeing that the longing for truth is what en enables anyone, however ordinary, to enter what she called the kingdom of truth. So it's this pursuit of truth that um, rescues us in a way. She refers a lot to this idea of of attention, which is why I suppose um, this is so interesting to us who meditate. It's this idea of bringing our attention to one thing, although that's painful and can be difficult. So it was in this, it was this longing in herself that defined her journey in writing, um, though it was interrupted very much by the First World War. And she became a teacher of philosophy in various schools and colleges in France and developed an interest in Hinduism and Sanskrit. She had a, a lot of interest in, in, in uh, other world religions. But her intellectual endeavours could not take her away from her sense of vocation, um, which impelled her, despite her genius in background and background, <coughs> to inhabit the very same world as that of the factory and farm workers she rubbed shoulders with in the industrial French towns where she taught and in the rural areas of Jura and Ardèche. And um, she, would, she spent years working in the Renault factory in, in France and, um, and uh, picking, sort of picking grapes, insistent that she had to do this mixing with the common paste of humanity and, um, you know, learning to speak their language on their level. And in June 1941, she was introduced to a friend, by a friend, to Father Reverend Perrin, who was a Dominican living in the convent in, Ma in Maasai. And it seems this meeting fired her pursuit both of the mystical dimensions of faith and her equally weighted longing to share in a life of direct contact with the soil. Um, she combined her studies with joining the manual workers, either in the fields during harvest or in the vineyards at the times when the grapes were gathered. And it was through this friendship with Father Perrin and the obvious tension she felt in relation to her vocation and where she stood with regards to the Catholic Church that her writing became so inspired. So this book, Waiting on God, from which we'll look later at some extracts, is a, is a collection of letters and essays sent to Father Perrin. Um, and the title sort of sums up what is really central in her thought, which is this idea of waiting in patience with attention. 
at whatever the cost. So it's extraordinary that someone of such profound thought should insist on subjecting herself to a way of life that, denied, that so denied her physical needs. And throughout her life, she, she suffered from terribly acute headaches and, and other ailments. Um, I mean, the, this, these headaches were a constant sort of um, harangued her. Um, and this was sort of compounded by the fact that she refused the extra nourishment that was recommended by the doctors during the time of the, the war, insisting that she would only eat the rations available to the common people in then occupied France. So eventually her health deteriorated to such a degree that she was admitted to the Middlesex Hospital in London where she'd been working for the French government and she was then transferred to a sanatorium in Ashford in Kent where she died on the 29th of August 1943 at the age of 34. So it seems to me that the gravity of Simone Weil's mysticism is exactly equal to what brought about her death at such a young age. It's almost as if um, she, could, she could hardly bear the insights that she'd been gifted with. Her, her, her constitution just disintegrated. Can I ask with the food, uh, was that, did she voluntarily eat as little as other people around her, or could she have eaten better? Well, she, she could have eaten better. I think because her, her health was so bad, the doctors, you know, advised, advised her. But that she, she could have. She could have done, yeah. But she insisted on only eating what was available to the other people at the time, yeah. So, yeah, part of her death, I think, was a, was a sort of self-starvation. So, yeah, it's this, she couldn't really hold it together. Um, the, you know, this, it's almost like the weight of this insight and this burden that she felt for people was, was, was almost too much. Um, and yet she was helped, she's helped me perceive that the degree to which we can bear the gravity of our cross is, is, this, is this sort of um, extraordinary kind of exploration she goes into of, of how the degree to which we can bear this, this gravity of our cross, whatever that is, is exactly proportional to the degree to which we are open to receive God's grace. Um, so it is through her life that she revealed that she sort of demonstrates this openness to the, the sufferings of Christ, um, which is very reminiscent to other mystics, I know, but it's this, the particular way that she goes about exploring this, um, um, which sort of takes us into a place of um, what it means to be human, what it means to be earthly beings with a divine purpose and she explores this really through what I think is one of the main themes I'm, I was going to talk to you about which is um, this idea of gravity and grace one of her writings is called Gravity and Grace 
Um, and um, as someone who kind of studied yoga, I don't know if any of you do, but it's, it's this, it, it makes a lot of sense to me, this, um, how our journey with God somehow has to integrate these things of, of our, what ties us to the earth, but also what makes us open to the divine. And we're, we're constantly caught in that dynamic. You know, the, the human frame is caught in that tension. And um, so she, yeah, she was not only a great philosopher, but she had the, the mind of a mathematician. And um, she, she, in her writing, she refers to maths as a way, as, a, as, a, as being a way to enlightenment almost, because of the attention required to work out a difficult sum and come up with an answer that is undisputably right is a kind of training <coughs> to, for the attention we should, we should give, apply to loving God. It's this mathematical thing. And um, so it's, in this spirit, she explores these themes of being human and transcendence in this life, of, a point, of coming to a point where space, the space and time we occupy on the earth is exactly proportional to the degree to which we are able to accommodate the paradoxes of joy and suffering without a preference for either. And she writes, through the beauty of the world, through joy, the beauty of the world penetrates our soul. Through suffering, it penetrates our body. Through joy, the beauty of the world penetrates our soul. Through suffering, it penetrates our body. Um, so, so we are sort of ruled by this gravity in space and time and what pins us to the soil beneath our feet. And in joy and suffering, we're ruled by grace, which allows us, this is what allows us to let go of our desire for either one or the other, for either joy or suffering. Um, so I hope I'm not kind of losing you, but it, it's... Um, Can you just repeat what mm. you said before the quote about mm. um, the space and time that we... Is it, did you say it's proportional to our ability to transcend our joy and suffering? Is that what you said? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, <laughs> it is... I don't want to get yeah, it wrong. Yeah, it is. Okay. It's, it's this... It's almost, yes, the, the, if, if we can, um, she says, through suffering it penetrates our body. So the degree to which we can take on suffering in, in, our, in our human body is, this, is the degree to which we can then experience the joy of the beauty of the world in our soul. But it's, it's this meeting point where we we are um, by, ruled by grace so in which we are able to not have to have no preference for either one or the other so I, I thought this is, it is complex so I sort of I try to come up with a kind of scenario which I hope makes some sort of sense to you because I was, I was battling with this myself and it's, I, I was trying to think of sort of an everyday thing that happens. So here we go, little 
story. Um, let's call, I'm just calling them A and B, anonymous people. A and B are good friends. They are friends because they have similar interests and values, and they feel joy and sadness over the same issues. It's a difficult time of year, February. Winter has dragged on and spring has not yet arrived. And it's a season when it's harder than usual to feel hopeful about anything. But A has hit a period of joy and encouragement and naturally wants to share it with B. So A arrives at B's house full of high spirits of good news, but B doesn't feel the same. In fact, as the evening wears on, B starts to resent the fact that Joy A is so happy. <laughs> it's, it's dis, this distance of emotion, it seems like a separation. And it taps into all of B's fear of loss, of being alone, of being friendless. For instance, it's as if B is looking at A across a great void. For, and for fleeting, but for very real moments, it's as if they didn't even know each other. I think we can all kind of relate to this on some level. And now, and it escalates, and now for A and B, it's as if what they had assumed to be connection has turned into this great chasm, a cold inner emptiness. What they had felt to be everything that all they held in common suddenly seems to be nothing, and nothing that loses them both and pulls them apart, a disintegration, a breakdown in relationship. It is at this point of disintegration that A's joy seems meaningless, as does B's seasonal sadness. At this point, they are both caught in the plight which I guess Simone Ray we recognise to be at the heart of humankind and each person's greatest fear to be left empty and to be without meaning. So this is the plight that the mystics recognise that separates us from God. It's this meaninglessness and emptiness. And it stems, really, from B's inability to share with A's joy and A's inability to share with B's pain. The failure to recognise that, in fact, all of creation is one and it's united by love. So we, as the sort of Gospels commission us to do, we enter this realm when we agree to weep with those who weep and laugh with those who laugh. And it is this realisation that sets the mystic apart from the world. The cycles of karma and perpetual patterns of expectation followed by disappointment. Um, so... What I'm trying to say there is that um, there's a transcendence that takes place when um, a person gets out of this cycle of constantly expect expectation, disappointment, expectation, disappointment, moving towards joy, moving away, running away from suffering, and. If we think about the movement of most of the world, that's basically what is making everybody rush about. Running towards this, running away from that. 
so central to her writing is what she really discovered through her own affliction, and this was that there was no differentiation between joy and sadness, that the pursuit of holiness and wholeness comes from a willingness to be open to both at whatever the cost to ourselves. Um, but, of course, this ability does not come through our own understanding. It's left to our, our own devices, people can only be dictated by what Simone Weil refers to as blind necessity, um, of the forces of gravity, which um, draw us towards the things that we accept and push us away from the things that we reject in each other, in ourselves, in the world. And the ability to transcend this pattern comes through grace, the spirit sent by God across the great chasm of death to reunite the whole of humanity in the love of Christ. So I, I just wanted to give you a, a quote from her, which would... Um, does anyone have any questions on that? It is, it is, it is intense, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when we when we come back afterwards, we'll go more into these quotes and have a chance to sort of get rid to grasp of what we really sort of feel about them. Because it's, it's, so, is she it's saying that um, if only we centered on love, then if we were in joy or in pain, because we meet the other who is not there. It's all the same. Yeah. So our, so our transcendence comes at the point to which we can really share in the, the sufferings of, of the other or the joy of the other. It's that, it's that sort of, um, that's, the moment of, that's the moment of grace. Um, to, to be yeah. the other. Yeah, yeah, to share in either the joys and the sufferings, however we're feeling. And she... We bypass our own feelings um, to make way for that, and so it, it's a total other centeredness. Total other centeredness, yeah. We we bypass ourselves, and uh, it's so in it's it and it you know it's. It, so we have to enter into the suffering mm. and leave the joy. No, no, no. It's well, I think or it's. Yeah, it's not. It, it's it's seeing that joy and suffering are actually the same thing. Yes. I yeah. So you can draw the suffering to the centre. Well, I think. I mean, maybe this quote will. Um, I I think this quote helps because it it sort of. Um, um, is it because you can't feel joyful if no one can share it? So therefore it's equally painful because you feel it in isolation? Yeah, yeah, I suppose, uh, I suppose you could say that. It sounds yeah. to me like it's, it's just, it sounds like it's a letting go of self in mm -hmm. a social context rather than being letting go of self alone. You're letting go of self to be with the other wherever they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, but in our human nature, we, we, we actually... I mean, it's like that 
CD you played, we, we do exactly what we don't want to do, in a way. We, our human nature is to do the opposite. It's, it's always to... To react. To react, yeah. You mean Jerry Pierce? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, so what it, it says, what is happening to me? I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I know I should do, which is... So we, we kind of do all this reaction thing, and she's saying that... Um, we need to bring these things together. So I, I'll read this to you, or some parts of this quote, um, which I think would help to illustrate what I'm trying to say. We live in a world of unreality and dreams. To give up our imaginary position as the centre, to renounce it not only intellectually, but in the imaginative part of the soul. That means to see the true light and hear the true silence. A transformation then takes place at the very roots of our sensibility, in our immediate reception of sense impressions and psychological impressions. It is a transformation analogous to that of which takes place in the dusk of an evening on a road, where we suddenly discern as a tree what we had first seen as a stooping man, or where we suddenly recognise as rustling of leaves what we thought at first was whispering voices. We see the same colours, we hear the same sounds, but not in the same way. To empty ourselves of our false divinity, to deny ourselves, to give up being at the centre of the world in imagination, to discern that all points in the world are equally centres and that the true centre is outside the world. This is to consent to the rule of mechanical necessity in matter and free choice at the centre of each soul. Such consent is love. The face of this love, which is turned towards thinking persons, is love of our neighbour. The face towards, turned towards matter is love of the order of the world, or love of the beauty of the world, which is the same thing. It sounded to me very Buddhist yeah. in the sense of, you know, we create a world as illusion and mm. we are illusion, yeah. this illusion. And this illusion that we feel that we're somehow at the centre when That's it, okay. yeah. It's the thing like who you are when you realise who you're not, I'm not that. Mm. So the rest yeah. of the presence mm. beyond it, which is mm. the same. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There's a strong touch of Philippians in this, isn't there, of... Uh, you know, though he was in the form of God, he did not mm. crowd, but emptied himself. Yeah. And that canonic kind of um, theology. But, but interesting, it's very sort of godless what she's talking mm. about. The emphasis is very much on the on the second commandment. Mm. Um, and the only point at which the transcendental came into that quote mm. was 
in the realization of the true center outside mm. the world. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yeah, a good point. It comes in very mm. late. Mm. Uh, I, I think that kind of hits on why um, it is. It, 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 she kind of shut herself out in a way, mm. in order to, in order to do this, and that's why it can feel um, very harsh, actually because uh, she just identified herself so much with being outside of this sense of belonging. Mm. What I really want to sort of go and explore, which is this, um, what she refers to as affliction. Mm. Um, and it's a really sort of central theme in, the, in Waiting on God, how in this place of what she calls affliction, we can, if we can still discover this thing called love. And if we've done that, then basically we have hit gold. It's that idea. Um, and affliction is, as she explains in Waiting on God, is not what we would normally consider as, as, as suffering. Um, we all suffer. But affliction is of a very particular kind, which is to do with an, a total disintegration of, the, of a person. And she says that it's practically impossible to love somebody who is really experiencing affliction. Um, it's possible, but it's practically impossible. Um, but if we if we can, then there's we we really come to what she considers to be this, this kind of centre of the cross in a way. Um, let me just ex ex illustrate that with a, another quote, which again will. You can look at later. When we hit a nail with a hammer, the whole of the shock received by the large head of the nail passes on to the point without any of it being lost, although it is only a point. If the hammer and the head of the nail were infinitely big, it would be just the same. The shock of the nail would transmit this infinite shock at the point to which it was applied. Extreme affliction, which means physical pain, distress of soul and social degradation all at the same time. So this is the kind of three uh, ways of identifying affliction as opposed to suffering. It's physical pain, distress of the soul and this important aspect of social degradation all at the same time. This constitutes the nail. The point is applied at the very centre of the soul. The head of the nail is all the necessity which spreads out throughout the totality of space and time. So it's this, it's this blind necessity, it's this gravity that pins the afflicted soul to the earth, is all brought to this painful point that penetrates in the singular point of the nail. 
Affliction is a marvel of divine technique. It is a simple and ingenious device which introduces into the soul of a finite creature the immensity of force, blind, brutal and cold. The infinite distance which separates God from the creature is entirely concentrated into one point to pierce the soul at its centre. The man to whom such a thing happens has no part in the operation. He struggles like a butterfly which is, pin which is pinned alive to an album. But through all the horror, he can continue to want to love. For the greatest suffering, so long as it does not cause fainting, does not touch the part of the soul which consents to a right direction. It is only necessary to know that love is a direction and not a state of the soul. If one is unaware of this, one falls into despair at the first onslaught of affliction. So, he who remains ever turned in the direction of God while the nail pierces it, and here we obviously think of Christ, he who remains ever turned in the direction of God while the nail pierces it finds himself nailed onto the very centre of the universe. It is the true centre. It is not in the middle. It is beyond space and time. It is God. It is at the intersection of creation and its creator. This point of intersection is the point of intersection of the branches of the cross. <laughs>